Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, amidst the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament, we look back on some of our favorite conversations with tennis greats. Maria Sharapova, John McEnroe, and Mary Carrillo. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio vault. Now, here's Brian's interview with Maria Sharapova from December 2021. My guest is Maria Sharapova, five-time Grand Slam tennis champion. She's won the career Grand Slam. She's an entrepreneur and investor. She's the founder of the premium candy company Sugar Pova. Follow her on social media at Maria Sharapova. Maria, I've been hosting this show for almost 18 years, and I've wanted to have you on that entire time, so I'm excited that you're joining me. How are you? I'm very well. Well, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. But that's okay. That's okay. It's good to have. I miss the pressure. So that's, that's good to have it back. I just think it's, you have one of the most incredible portfolios I've ever seen. And I want to start with this. So you move from Russia to the United States when you're a young girl and you start playing tennis at an early age. And you're sitting in on these meetings as a teenager with Nike and Avion and Porsche. A lot of people would just send their agent to go sit in on those meetings and negotiate the deals. You were doing that on your own as a teen. How has that helped you as a business person today? Well, I also sent my agent and I sent my father and I sent myself. So <laughs> I made sure that I, <laughs> that I had someone that, that knew me. But, you know, My father was by my side and, and was able to make the right decisions because I was so young, but I was mostly curious about how this process works. I mean, I, I did, really didn't have a, a proper education. Um, I, you know, it's, many people would say I became street smart from, from the experience that I gained along this crazy journey of mine. And I, I wanted to be in those rooms and I wanted to be in those meetings because there was some, something inside of me that said that although tennis was a big part of my life and will be for the next however many years, it wasn't going to be my life in capital letters. Like there was, I always believed there was more to it. And I, and I had to become savvy and smart. And I'd have to, although you can have supporters and people that, you know, have your back at the end of the day, um, a big part of sport is business. And, and I, I'm not sure where that, that came from because my parents didn't really have a financial background, but I think they had a, a good enough head on their shoulders to guide me in the right direction, which was, um, I think, a really, a really important beginning in anyone's life. More recently, I saw that you attended Harvard Business School. How was that, and what did you learn there? 
Intimidating. Very intimidating. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, isn't it always intimidating to be the one that doesn't have all the answers, especially when you um, come from a career in a sport where you're part of a high elite, you're part of, um, you know, the world's best. And so you, you think you know everything <laughs> and then you go into a room and you're just, um, you're not as smart as everyone in that room. And it definitely took me a while to, um, you know, once you're comfortable raising a hand and asking a question, um, I, I think you, you settle in. And I, I left those few weeks um, in Boston and I, Oh, I, I love that experience so much. I, I could go back tomorrow. That's fantastic. What do you look for in a business partner? You have been with Nike, Avion, Porsche for many years. You're an investor and advisor with companies like Tonal and Therabody and Public.com. When someone comes to you and they say, we want to work with you, what are you looking for in that partner? Many things, I'll be honest, um, but uh, but all of that starts with a, a human approach and the, the people, the person behind it. Um, I always think you, you know, I believe that you can have phenomenal ideas and innovations and breakthroughs, but your company, um, your invention will always go through ups and downs, and and most of the time, many downs, particularly in the beginning, and it's and it's about the people that propel it forward. It's the ideas, it's the, the confidence, the motivation. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of ego, but it's smart ego to know that you, you know, you belong in the space, but yet how do you keep your feet on the ground to propel forward? So it's this interesting combination of having, you know, having enough time with, with founders. I love spending time with them before I get into any professional partnership because that's at the core is, is people, you know, you're going to call when something's going, you know, I, if something happens, you're always going to call the, the founder, right? The, the CMO, the, the people behind it, you, you don't, you don't call the software. So it's those decisions, it's the brains that are behind it, that, that push it forward. And, and I love getting to know them and learning from them because they help me make better decisions in, in my future, whether it's with different companies or different people. You mentioned your agent and your dad earlier. Who makes up Team Maria? Who are your strategic advisors? They're still on it <laughs> many years later. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> it's really good, and it's very rare, um, particularly in in sport. Um, you know, when when you when you get your first large paycheck, and it and it most of the time comes into your parents' account because you're too young to have <laughs> an account. You know, you're always faced with this question: Well. What, what, where does this money go? Obviously, you're reinvested towards your career, but with the savings that you have, you know, how do you how do you distribute it? How, where, where does it go? Well, what do I keep? What do I get my parents? It's just all these conversations that are um, that are very unique in my life. And I, yeah, I still have I still have a manager. I have a a few other um, employees that take care of a, a few bits and pieces. Um, but other than that, it just I think I, from what I see compared to most, it is a very small group. Yeah, I think it is a small group and it's a rare thing, like you said, to have relationships that last that long. Uh, I want to talk about some specific partnerships. So I'm based in Portland. I know the people at Nike very well. You signed there, I think as an 11 year old. Um, So you've been with them for a long time. They've made you one of the most marketable athletes on the planet. And in addition to your other partners, but 
I got to ask you about a certain thing with Nike. So the I Feel Pretty commercial that was <laughs> filmed in New York. I mean, Maria, whenever I watch that commercial, I can't get that song out of my head for like two or three days. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very catchy song with or without the commercial. So, <laughs> Well, and what a lot of people may not realize all these years later is they did that big campaign for you around the U.S. Open. And then lo and behold, you go out and win the U.S. Open. So it's, you, you it may- is the, the perfect commercial <laughs> storm. Exactly. Because that, you know, that, that type of um, alignment with shooting a, a, a big time production and one that took a couple of days to film. Um, there was a big financial commitment from Nike to then go into the U.S. Open. It launches during the U.S. Open and that is the first U.S. Open that I win. And it is the first commercial that comes on after that match point of the final um, was, was incredibly special and that that does not happen very often tell me about the making of the commercial so it's in new york city it looks like maybe you were in the waldorf astoria is what was in the commercial yes yeah and you've got the mcenroe brothers and i didn't you know what's funny looking back at that i didn't really i didn't really understand like the mega around it i didn't you know i i was very grateful and i um, after I won Wimbledon, I was, I was still 17 years old. And I remember N- uh, Nike flew me out to Portland and they built out this and they decked out this entire room and they made it into the Maria land of all my favorite things, <laughs> like this closet that was all in pink with my favorite items and my favorite shoes. And there was this pair of shocks. And if you remember the shocks that oh, I, yeah. I loved and they customized a pair for me and and a funny story, I still have some of it. They custom made these um, like closet cabinets for me, and I still have those till this day, and I still use them. And they're such a beautiful memory. So that to me was like, wow, this is amazing. No, I love winning Wimbledon. Um, shooting a commercial, it's, it's, it's more of a production, right? You're either a lot of people, there's a lot of hustle, and... As a young girl, I I don't think I really understood the um, I think the, the the value or the importance of being in a you know in a national commercial um, on U.S. television. Like it didn't quite quite hit me. I look back at that now and think of, of how special and obviously the timing made it even better. But I just didn't quite, and and I think that's good that I didn't quite understand the the, the meaning of it and and the power of it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And it, you know, has millions of views on YouTube all these years later. So even though, you know, that commercial ran a long time ago, anyone can go online and, and view it today. And I just think it's such a clever commercial and catchy and <laughs> it looked like it was a lot of fun it was to film. Really, I think it did, a, you know, it, it was a very, um, I was very focused on the court. And I think many people and fans knew me for that quality. And I, I, I almost had these horse blinders on. I didn't look left and right. I didn't look behind me. I just, I looked straight ahead. It was just me and my opponent. And I, I always believed in this philosophy and I think it did a really good job of, I think, um, making me look like I was on a mission. And yet there's a side that like people couldn't quite break through to me, um, which I think was a very <laughs> accurate description of a younger Maria. Um, and then I hit the ball and I hit a winner. And then there's this moment that, ah, okay, this is what it's about. And I think that was, that was a very powerful um, part of this commercial. So I want to ask you about that. I know a lot of people at Nike and Nike works with a lot of world-class athletes. And the people I talk to at Nike, Maria, 
have said that Maria Sharapova is one of the most competitive athletes that I have ever been around. As a matter of fact, someone told me Maria hates losing more than she likes <laughs> winning. That's probably accurate. <laughs> Not probably. It is accurate. <laughs> so where do you get that fire from? Oh, I, I'm not sure if it's, you know, part of it is, is growing up and coming from a, a place where um, I grew up in Russia and there weren't that many options. Like I, I didn't grow up having, um, you know, a class in the afternoon, a dance, and then having gymnastics on another day and then, um, you know, soccer another day. Like I was fully committed to one sport and I, I knew that there was a reason to it. Like I, I was working hard. I, I, I also saw my improvements weekly. And so that as a young girl, uh, noticing those little improvements and adjustments, I think made me excited about, oh, well, what's next week? Like, what is my coach going to teach me? And, and am I going to, am I going to transition, you know, what, what he's showcasing, what he can do, will I be able to do it? So for some reason, and I, and I, I don't think that comes in what was quite rare is, was this focus that I could repeat and hit the ball many, many times and not get bored because kids get bored. We all get bored. Right. <laughs> I, I still get bored, but <laughs> there's something about zoning in on that ball and perfecting it um, that gave me this competitiveness of doing it better every single time. Yeah, it showed. It's, it's pretty amazing, uh, the talent and the competitiveness that you brought to the court. I want to talk to you a little bit about fashion. Again, you're such a diverse person and I know you're into fashion. I saw your recent collaboration with designer Iris Van Herpen and her longtime brand partner, Avion, your longtime brand mm -hmm. partner, Avion. And you created this dress that was made out of Avion bottles, right? Yes. The dress was made, uh, the material of the dress was made out of 75% um, of recycled Avion bottles that would have otherwise gone to waste. Um, and we, we worked on this project for about 12 months and it, it came came to life uh, this month in um, in London at the British Fashion Awards. And it was a real testament to well, one innovation because it, it took two to three months to create this material to even see if it could execute and could sit um, as a little piece of material on my body. Um, once that was established, then you go into the design and the creativity and then you know, you add Iris, um, Iris's experience in her artwork. I mean, she's she's an, a, a true artist, and, and what she creates and the dresses that she makes are um, are. I mean, every one of the, each one of them deserves to be in a museum. They're they're so beautifully crafted, and yeah, and then obviously working on this transitional part of my life um, that's been more to health and wellness and and lifestyle and sustainability and material science and having a partner like Evian that's been a partner of mine for, wow, it's been eight years now um, to, to see that transition from sport to lifestyle and, and to work on this project is, is so much fun personally for me. Where does your passion for fashion come from? It was my mother. Um, and, and not because she loved fashion, but because her aesthetic was very, was minimal in approach, but it was elegant. And there was, um, you know, there's this dance sensibility. She she was a dancer. She enjoyed dancing, not professionally, but for fun. And um, and coming from a very cultural background in Russia, and, and her taking me to to ballet all the time and and to different um, dance performances. I was always um, 
infatuated by how the body moves with clothes and and I think how you're able to showcase a piece of who you are and a piece of your personality through what you wear. It's so individual, so personal. Um, and I, I think that's where, you know, understanding, I remember when I came to the United States and I, I first went to a mall, which <laughs> now they're dying, but at the time they're, <laughs> they were in. And I remember loving going to express because they're, they're one of the only few brands that would make things for tall, tall girls and tall right. teenagers. Yep. And that was the one thing I wanted for my birthday and for Christmas, um, was a gift certificate to this store because I could like, find things to wear. And I always, I appreciate it for some reason. I appreciated buying something and having it for a very long time. And, and that, I guess that, that means that my style is minimal in approach because what you like today has to, you know, has to sit with you for a long time for you to appreciate it in, in many years time. Um, but that's kind of how I, I've approached fashion from, from different angles, even, design and, and my house and and the way that I live I'm quite minimal and and even actually the investments in businesses that I invest in I I think we're just flooded with choices and and options and I love to to go through all of that to really understand um how something will impact your life and where it sits in your life like do you really need it well how will it shape and craft your future how will it help your body and your mind and and if it doesn't, then it doesn't deserve a place in my closet or even in the cupboard or under the bed or anywhere um, because it, it might, I might use it once, but I'll never use it again. So I have a very similar approach and yeah, holistically. So you've got an interest in architecture too, and you've had that since you were young. You work with Rove Concepts now and you're designing furniture. And, you know, I've seen pictures in these photo shoots of your house. Your house <laughs> looks amazing. But you're really into architecture, and I've read that you know when you've traveled around the world, you're looking for certain types of architecture. Where does that passion come from? I think it was a it was a hobby that started from a young age. There are two things that I, I enjoyed doing while traveling. One was collecting stamps, and and I no longer do that, although I still have my stamp collection. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> I remember many years ago we'd received these like fan mail letters from from fans that also collected stamps and like they would get all geeky about their stamp collection. I was like, I don't know if I'm that far into this process. I just, I found a way I I love traveling around the world. And it was this piece of souvenir that I would kind of bring back. Like I I would find a post office and, 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 and find the local stamps in this country and then bring it back home. And it made me feel like I took something from this travel and, and brought it back to to my house and then um architecture was actually it was it started with my love for frank gary who's um an incredible incredible architect who till this day is um creating some of the most forward thinking and, and interesting um buildings and homes that you'll find in the world and and my goal as a young girl was to find a frank gary design building because they were so distinct and hmm. very obvious and and look and feel that I, um, every time, you know, when I'd go to Prague, when I'd go to, you know, anywhere in Australia, it was like my mission um, to find a Frank Gehry building and and photograph it for my mom. <laughs> That's great. What a fun thing for you guys to just kind of have in common and share and 
Um, going back to fashion, you've come a long way from Express. Now you don't have to go to the mall. You can probably call up any fashion designer in the world and say, <laughs> hey, I need a dress. And they'll be like, hey, Maria, great. We'd love to make one for you. It's not as easy as it sounds, <laughs> but I, 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 I have a bit more access. <laughs> a bit more, I'm the sure. Fashion world, the fashion world is, is um, it's an interesting one. It's definitely, there are a lot of middle, you know, the, Fashion's not just about the designer, it's about all the people that work there and all the middle people. And it is really about having relationships and 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 creating them and working on them. And yeah, it's not it's 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 not as simple as as, as finding a one eight hundred um number I, online I, and I'm calling sure. up and being like, I just I want I want a free dress. <laughs> I get I get it. Well, especially like you said, after you know, being a teenager and having a uh, more difficult time finding clothes that fit to be able to have better access to that, I'm sure is great. I want to ask you about Shark Tank. Mark Cuban has been on with me on this show, and you were a guest shark, a guest investor on Shark Tank. What was that experience like for you? So much fun. I, I had, I was there for 12 hours. We filmed for about nine of those hours, and I could have kept going. I could have done <laughs> 24, 30. I, I mean, I could have done 48 hours in a row. I, I had so much fun seeing you know what struck me is how um is how real it felt it, it really when you watch it on tv you know there's always an element of tv that that is staged um well not just not just an occasional element a lot of the time tv is staged but in this instant i i was so um pleasantly surprised how how real it felt how how natural um it was for for these and how brave um, of these founders to come up on stage and to present their business and their babies to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the same time, get grilled <laughs> from all the sharks, you know, because they're also tough. This is a job for them. They're on set for, for many days out of the year. They treat this as, as part of their job and as part of their financial investment. It's their own money. And so they deserve you know, to be asking the, the tough questions. Um, I love seeing that side of the sharks as well. Like I love seeing the humility and and the honesty, vulnerabilities of the founders and presenters. But I also enjoyed seeing how the judges themselves handled, you know, asking the questions. Um, you know, being how they they spoke about their own experiences, how they made you know, when someone didn't feel comfortable presenting, how they made them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. I think these are all the lessons that I as you know, someone that's fairly new to to this new world of entertainment, um, I actually get to learn. Like I, I, lo- I love, although I am part of the, the judge panel, I'm also by watching um, these judges perform as they're doing and invest. Um, I'm able to see how they're they're hand you know handling the situation, presenting themselves, and presenting uh, who they are and what they invest in. As I mentioned earlier, you are an investor, a strategic advisor with companies like Tonal, Therabody, and Public.com. But Maria, you're also a founder of Sugar Pova. What's it like being the founder of a company? A lot more responsibility, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the main reasons I I wanted to start my own company. Um, you know, giving people a little piece of, of indulgence and, and the allowing people a piece of indulgence, because although I, I completely understood what it was to be tough on myself and diligent on, on my, on my health and my body and making sure that I was 
always ready to perform at the highest level. I also, there's the side of me that loved indulging and that, <laughs> that loved splurging and allowing myself to, you know, enjoy sweet treats and enjoy time with my friends. And there's a really, I felt like it was a healthy balance in, in, in my life of being very disciplined, but also giving myself this freedom um, to be, yeah, to be, um, to be a little bit more expressive and to be human. Um, and, you know, the other part of, of building a brand is, is the branding, which I really enjoyed doing. I, I loved the creative process. I, I loved working on the name and the logo and, and how something is presented to the world. Um, you know, and, and candy is so it's youthful and fun and, and it's colorful and it's energetic and, yeah, it, it's it's been a learning, um, a huge learning experience, but one that I've so many lessons that that I've extracted and, and applied to to many of the other investments that I made. So that brings me to when you're a strategic advisor and an investor again with a company like Tonal or Therabody. How do you know kind of like when to jump in and advise them, or when to? Well, it's not my company. I'm not the founder. I'll take my foot off the gas a little bit here. Yeah, great question. And I think it's really understanding your strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, I remember I remember having my initial one of my initial calls with Ali Atono, founder of Tono. And I remember telling him, like, I want to learn from you as much as I want to contribute to this. So if there are I really like threw myself into it. I said, look, I know what my I know what my limitations are. I'm not going to go into your R and D. But you send me the unit and I will spend four weeks with it and I will tell you every little single thing. Like I will do an entire analysis on each program um, of how, you know, each pool came out and how the weight was personalized for me and just my entire experience on on this platform. Um, and I will spend a lot of time. I'll commit myself. And so I, I think I'm pretty pretty honest with my approach and and I really understand what I, I can contribute in. And so as long as you lay it out at the beginning, um, so there's no false expectations, then I think it, it's pretty clear. One of the things that you do an amazing job with, and not all athletes do this, is you're really great on social media when it comes to supporting your partners. You know, I love getting a little bit of a glimpse of the passion for architecture and fashion that we discussed earlier in this conversation. What's your strategy when it comes to social media? Are you one of those that wakes up every morning and goes, eh, I think I'll post something today. You're more spontaneous or is it more strategic and planned out? I'm definitely more spontaneous in my approach. Um, you know, there's certain, there's certain commitments and certain events that, that go on during the year. There's certain launches by my brand partners that are important to them. Um, that I that I support and that I enjoy supporting, but you know it's a very you know, social media is, is very tricky for many reasons, and and I and the reason why I treat it spontaneously is because I think people are very aware of when something is forced and mm. and not very natural to to who you are. Um, I think that's so because there are so many examples of it, unfortunately, on social media right now it's very easy to, to go through something and really know if it, that's genuine or not. And so I try, I mean, there are definitely, you know, if there's a product launch for, for a company and, and they need support. I always say like, I mean, obviously, of course, this is a company that I've been with for so many years that have financially supported 
you know, me for so many years that have brought so many opportunities to my life, I am 100% going to support it, but I will do it on my terms, meaning that I will send me the product, let me live with it, let me see how I use it in my life, and then create great content around that. And, and sometimes it's it looks like it's well-produced content and sometimes it looks unproduced. And, and usually the, <laughs> the pieces that are unproduced do the best um, right. in terms of performance because that's, that's the real life because real life is, is not filtered. Yeah. Now, I think you do a great job. So we'll end with this. In 1994, I think it was, your father immigrated from Russia with $700 in his pocket. Maria, what a life you've lived so far. And did you ever dream that this could be your life when you were younger and, you know, having dreams of tennis and maybe being a business person in fashion? Did you ever allow yourself to dream that this is what it could be? I remember when I used to shop at TJ Maxx um, with my parents and I used to walk through the aisles and I used to think, wouldn't it be amazing if I could walk through the store and I can just have everything. I wouldn't, I don't have to choose. Like I don't have to choose if today I get, you know, something in black and tomorrow, you know, maybe in a month I get it in Navy. Like I can, it was just this strange thought in my mind. Mm. And I just look back at like that night, that naive thought as a young girl thinking it wasn't like I thought about money in that way. I just thought like, I thought about accessibility. I was like, imagine I can walk in here and I can just get this without really having a second thought and I could give it to my mom as a gift. And looking back at that now, I'm, I'm incredibly proud that I've been able to provide for myself and obviously provide for my family and back home in Russia. And it makes me like, that's a sense of, um, it is an accomplishment, but it's a sense of safety, right? It's a sense of like, I, I, I've been able, I know that I can take care of their health and I can make them happy and, and that they're, they're going to be okay. Um, but there's also, I'm, I'm 34 years old and there's, there's an entire new life ahead of me. So I'm also, maybe that's the, the competitive um, side of me that always looks to the future and always wants to, um, always wants to do better and always wants to learn and, and be curious and, and, you know, who knows what the next chapter will, will look like and, and how it will be set in stone. But I'm, I'm just as excited about it. Maria Sharapova, five-time Grand Slam tennis champion, founder of the company Sugarpova, entrepreneur, investor. Follow her on social media at Maria Sharapova. Maria, like I said, I've been looking forward to this for 17 years. It was worth the wait. Thank you so much for joining I me on really Sports Business I really enjoyed Radio. this. Thank you so much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy, the fastest growing fantasy app ever released and the official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio. And with early investors like Mark Cuban, Kevin Durant, Adam Schefter, and Jared Goff, I know that Underdog Fantasy is made for people like me who are on the go and want something quick, easy, and fun to play. And today we've got a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. If you sign up to Underdog Fantasy using the promo code SBR, they're going to double your first deposit up to $100. No risk, no long-term commitment. Just sign up using promo code SBR and your first deposit is matched up to $100 for free. I already play Underdog Fantasy on the Underdog Fantasy app, but if I didn't, I'd use that free $100 and 
go for a pick'em contest where I can bet the over/under on individual players or team matchups, or maybe the Best Ball Mania Three contest worth ten million dollars in total prizes. All you have to do is draft a team for the season. No waivers, no lineups, no injury reports. Underdog Fantasy takes care of all of that for you. So do what I've been doing. Go to Underdog Fantasy, download the app, sign up with promo code SBR, and get started right away with a free match on your first deposit up to $100. Now, here's Brian's interview with John McEnroe from 2005. We are very pleased to be joined by Tennis Hall of Famer and TV personality John McEnroe. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for that kind intro. So, John, we understand you have a new show coming on five days a week on CNBC. Tell us about it. Well, that's going to be my first uh, full-time job. I've been been pretty lucky, actually, in my life. I've uh, been able to do something which I really don't even consider to be a job, which would be a professional athlete, and I was able to have a pretty good and long career doing that for 15 years. And then I had the opportunity to the past 10 10 years or so to – get into sort of the, the the other side of the camera, so to speak, the commentary booth, do some TV, uh, uh, be doing the uh, commentary for tennis, and, and still playing a little bit, getting out there on the seniors tour. And something that, uh, because I've had some success doing the commentary, that probably for the past five or six years that people have come up to me and sort of said, hey, you should do something else, maybe a talk show. And it was, I like to talk. That's a, that's a good thing, and I'd like to be able to do something besides um, just talk about tennis, other sports. I love music and art, and sure. I love politics from a distance. So this is, you know, it's, I, I don't consider it a job in the sense of people having to go out and put food on the table for the kids. But for me, it will be a, an everyday thing when, and a lot more time-consuming, but some, some a challenge I really look forward to. Well, John, a job a lot of people would love to see you in is possibly head of tennis, commissioner of the ATP. If you were in a job like that, what would you do to help boost tennis? Well, I would uh, encourage people to, since we're on business, uh, sports business radio, to still buy my book that's still available. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had 10 suggestions to try to improve the sport that we could go on for an extended period of time. The most obvious ones would be, to me, uh, to uh, cut down the schedule, because I think in a lot of cases you're seeing the, the tennis players, um, uh, a lot of injuries, which is it undermines the quality of the sport. And I'm concerned that the serve has become so big and the power is so prevalent out in the game that we've lost some of that strategy and subtlety that you would be able to see otherwise. So, I would encourage it. Uh, I suggest wood rackets. Perhaps it's too late for that, but it, the the idea being that we need to do something to sort of see some more diversity out there and see some more more Federer type players that can hit every shot. I think it makes makes for a more interesting matches. I, I, I guess you would say slow the game down a little bit. Um, those would be would be the most obvious. There's ways. There's other ways. Um, I suggested, for example, that we try to emulate the uh, or hire the PR firm or the people that work in NASCAR because I think they've done a fantastic job promoting their sport and sure. um, marketing it. But also the, what is the key thing to me is to, to make the, the the tennis players, the drivers are way more accessible to me in, in that sport and they have a much better relationship with their fans than than we do in tennis. And I think that's something that needs to change. We are joined by John McEnroe. John, who are some of the tennis players out there on the women's side and the men's side that you see that may be able to carry the torch? When we watched you, you had such great matchups with Borg and Lendl. And 
Connors and we saw Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova. We don't seem to have those rivalries that we used to have. I'd love to see the. the I like Andy Roddick quite a bit. I, I think he's he he gets that things need to be done. He he he's a personality. He's smart. Um, he 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 brings a lot to the table. And if if for example a guy like Roger Federer, who I think is maybe the greatest all around talent I've ever seen, if these guys would play more often and in bigger matches. I think that the sport could nurture that that rivalry, and it would really help things. It's it's tricky because on the women's side you have the Williams sisters, but it's at least for me it's it's been always been the most awkward match I've tried to commentate on when the two of them played together, and the inconsistency that they play. You know, they they they're they're not out there for extended periods of time when they play each other. It seems like it's difficult for the two of them to give a hundred percent against each other, which mm-hmm. which is natural. I mean, I played my brother a couple times and I found it quite difficult to sort of get in that right frame of mind. So I understand there's difficulties there. So you sort of hope that um, Justine Hennon has always been one of my favorites that if, if she st- continued to step up, she's injured now in the French open, but she continued to step up and um, uh, had some great matchups with either of the ones, Serena being the more obvious too. Serena, to me, would be have the makings of a great rival with someone like a Hennon because she seems to embrace and enjoy the spotlight and being number one or having been number one a lot more than her sister had seemed to in the past. So that would seem to be Serena and someone would helpful. But certainly in a one-on-one game like tennis, um, to me it's critical that we we encourage and, and some some of it's luck. I mean you can't deny that and. Uh, but but we have to try to uh, do a better job again marketing the players so that people become more aware of them as as human beings and personalities and I think that would help help the sport. John, a lot of the players have complained that they can't be themselves. Certainly, fans are interested in rivalries, but fans are also interested in personalities. And we've heard or read some quotes from players that say, "Well, there's so many different governing bodies that don't let me do this or don't let me do that." Is that part of the problem? I think that's part of the problem. I mean, I think we have one of the weakest unions that I think in any sport, which is disappointing. I don't think they seem to to get what the, the most important things that we need to attack in tennis are to sort of keep a better eye on and to change. Um, they don't. They seem to be more worried about protecting their own jobs. Uh, a perfect example to me is uh, Murat Safin, who I happen to think is a, is a great personality and and he's a, he's a smart guy. He's a great looking guy. He seems to be coming back into the top ten, a type of player we need. And to me, they're trying to muzzle him. Um, they tried to do it at the French Open. He 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 did some funny things, and he was part of some intense ma- matches that I think the crowd loved and, and the sport would like in general. And I think that um, it's a justifiable complaint. In some ways, it was people like myself and Connors and Nastasi who they felt were, were, weren't listening to them, and got and they felt things had gotten out of control that they tightened things up too much. But I mean, again, in a one-on-one game. I think it's critical that people see personality or else they just won't have a feeling. I mean, when I went out on the court with Connors, for example, I think people, they, they had a strong feeling one way or the other. I think it's better to, even even I felt like it, I'd rather have someone sort of yelling against me. Um, obviously would prefer they were yelling for me, but even I would prefer them yelling against me than having no feeling whatsoever. And it seems like too often you see that now. 
Let's switch gears for a minute. John, you were always passionate about playing Davis Cup and representing your country. In the last few months, we've seen a lot of athletes who have decided to pass on going to Athens, whether it's tennis or other sports. What are your thoughts on representing your country and drawing the line between athletes making that decision to go or not to go? Well, I think there's an added element of uncertainty with all this t- terrorism and stuff that's that's made the decision more difficult. In, in the case of tennis, um, our four major events have, have long been the biggest the biggest events of the calendar year. And only since 1988 has tennis become a sport in the, the Olympics again. I personally believe that the... Uh, Olympics, uh, we should try to encourage in the sport of tennis to be a perfect example of trying to encourage only amateurs to play and to reward them in terms of giving wild cards or into events if they were to stay amateur and stay in these events. Um, I mean, to stay in the Olympics. I, I, I think it's this year, for example, the Olympics is being held right before the U.S. Open. And that's along with Wimbledon, our two biggest events of the year. Right. And, um, it's difficult for players to sort of – they're already over tennis as it is and are required to play too many events. And to put those two close together uh, is, is quite difficult for them to think that they can overcome that, especially considering they just played the French in, in June and then Wimbledon after that. It's, it's a schedule that's, that's quite difficult. So I think we have to reassess, as a, again, as an, org, uh, an overall sport, what – what we're trying to do with the Olympics um, because either we support it or we, or we should change it and, and make it amateur and then try to support that. But when you see half of the players um, not even showing up, I mean, that can't be good for it. Can't be good for it. John, we've got time for one more quick question and we want to end on a, a little bit of a lighter note. Uh, talk about your guitar play a little bit. You've gotten better and better. If you could jam on once on a stage with anybody yesteryear today, who would that be? Well, that's a tough call. Probably, um, I, you know, I've long known Keith Richards and, and, and would love to be out there with the Rolling Stones. Eddie Van Halen has been someone I was fortunate enough. Can I keep going? Jimi oh. Hendrix would probably be the person if, uh, if he was alive uh, today. But I've actually been lucky that in that I've played with a lot of unbelievable guitarists. Do you have your and, guitar and with the, you? And I'll make a long story short. It's made right. me appreciate my tennis more. Do you have your guitar with you right now? I actually have my guitar with me right now. and um, Could you I'm take us out with a little uh, number? Um, sure. You got it. I mean, if you want me to ruin your radio show, oh, no. I'll be more than willing to this do so. This would be I'm priceless. Gonna... <laughs> okay. Well, this is this is going to be an acoustic version Fine. Of, um, of a song. But let's see. What do you want, a heavy metal or like a rock and roll song or yeah, something more mellow? Stone, something Keith Richards like is fun. Okay. Let's get, uh, why don't we try a little Jimi Hendrix Purple Haze, okay? Nice. nice. Try to listen carefully. Here we go. That was priceless. 
Now, is this... Will you be, I don't know if you should put that out on Portland radio, but anyway. Well, we'll give it a shot. Uh, will you be the band as well on the new show? Um, you know, we don't have a band, actually, but I certainly will hope that occasionally... We've done a couple test shows where I played a little, so I, actually that would be a nice part of... Um, the show if maybe one of the bands when they rolled in would allow me to play with them oh, my, my, and, my, and also I should point out my wife Patty Smythe who used to be in Scandal and has done her own solo records has written a great theme song for the show so that's hopefully great people, I think people will like it John we wish you the best of luck with the show we really appreciate you taking the time and we think you're great for the sport of tennis and for TV it's great to listen to your opinion so good luck with everything thanks guys appreciate it Hey everyone, Brian Berger here. Roan is the new official menswear partner of Sports Business Radio. I love their product. I've been a fan for a long time. Did you know David Stern was one of their first investors? Roan makes the absolute highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable performance-driven clothing for men. Their entire line places emphasis on an active, balanced, and purpose-driven lifestyle. I'm wearing my spar joggers. I've got them in uh, Heather Gray, I've got them in navy. I've got my moleskin commuter slim pant. I've got my regular black commuter pant. I've got my dress shirts. So when I'm out in in-person meetings, I have the nicer Roan product to wear. But most of the time, I'm working from home. And I've got my rain long sleeve gray Heather camo. I've got my rain long sleeve hoodies. I am wearing the shorts for workouts, the seven-inch Mako shorts. So I'll tell you what, from top to bottom, whether it's casual or business wear, Roan has me covered. I know they're going to have you covered too. And Roan is offering Sports Business Radio podcast listeners 15% off your purchase. Go to Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com and enter code SBR15 at checkout, like Sports Business Radio 15. SBR15 at checkout. Receive 15% off your purchase. That's Roan.com, R-H-O-N-E.com, and enter promo code SBR15 at checkout. Now, here's Brian's interview with Mary Carrillo from December 2020. My guest is Mary Carrillo. She is a member of the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame. You've seen her on HBO Real Sports as a correspondent. She's also on NBC as a terrific Olympics correspondent, commentator for the National Dog Show, and a longtime tennis commentator. Mary, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm very well. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. A lot of those sports you just mentioned didn't really happen too much in 2020, did they? Well, so that's where I wanted to start, and I've been starting with all my guests, is how has your job changed in 2020? Well, and a lot of stuff that I was supposed to cover, like the Olympics in Tokyo, not I mean, that that didn't happen. Wimbledon did not happen. I usually I've been spending better part of forty years covering that tournament. Um, a lot of things went away. I called Brian, for instance, I called the Italian Open tennis championships from Los Angeles. I called the French Open championships from Stanford, Connecticut. I actually went to the U.S. Open tennis championships which was held in New York, and I actually got to go to New York. Um, but other than that, I really haven't been traveling much at all in 2020. And then the National Dog Show, didn't you call that remotely as well? I, yeah, we did that remotely. I did it over about four days because we did a bunch of features about – it was actually pretty heartwarming because so many dogs 
understandably have been adopted this year by people who are at home, working from home, are lonely, you know, can't hug other people. Um, so, I mean, there have been some bright spots, I would say, uh, in this god-awful year of the pandemic. And uh, telling the dog stories was kind of nice, listening to how, how and why people adopted the dogs they did. And, and now there's now there are dogs that are being trained to sniff out COVID in people because they can do that for certain cancers as well. So yes, I, in fact, I'm doing another dog show that will air in January, uh, in Orlando next week, but I'm not allowed inside of the arena. I've got to, I've got to do all my reporting from, from outside the arena. So yeah, there've been a, a hell of a lot of changes. And I just wonder from you, Brian, cause I know you've been talking to a lot of people about this year in sports. Are there any, good takeaways. Are there any things that you have watched happen in the world of professional sports this year or college sports that you actually hope continue on in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think we're more efficient than we may have been before. I I think we're learning what we really need in order to make an event work Mm -hmm. or a production work and and what we may not need. So I think the efficiencies have been better. I think uh, voice activated and touchless is going to be big going forward. So, you know, I saw the Super Bowl this week announce that they're going to be cashless from now on. So um, certain yeah. certain things like that, I think how we clean facilities is going to be more efficient yeah. and more thorough. Um, yeah. But look, you know, as we move into the point of the conversation here where we talk about your most recent piece for Real Sports on HBO – you did a real poignant piece on super fans. I think people miss being around each other, whether they're season ticket holders or players or coaches or broadcasters. We all miss being around each other. That's right. That that was sort of the, the point of it. I mean, there were parts of it that were funny because there's a guy who's been dressing up as a gorilla for a couple of decades. There's Bando Man and Clipper Darrell, their bird lady, who's a big Falcons fan, and they have missed their community. They've missed being part of something bigger than themselves. So that was actually when I when the story was first pitched to me, I thought I don't know, I don't, I don't know if this is really are these just you know kind of crazy people. But then I got to understand why they were super fans. You know what 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 it, what a fanatic. You know what what's the through line with all these people? And the fact is, these are people who like family, who like being part of something big and celebrating that. So it's been a hard year for. For, for that for that subset of people and for fans everywhere. I I'm one of those people, Brian, who feels that my physical presence at a sporting event can change the outcome of it. <laughs> <laughs> if I focus hard enough, if I stare hard enough at the quarterback or at the guy serving, or at like I, I genuinely feel that my presence can alter the the, the chemicals in the air. And, and change an outcome. So that's how crazy I am. So have you seen the movie with Robert De Niro and Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence? Uh, what is it? Silver Linings? Yeah. Play- okay, so yeah, Robert I- De Niro's character, you know, the juju in the room, like he can't move <laughs> from his seat or he's got to hold the remote a certain way in order for the outcome to be the same. Is that you? Yes. <laughs> well, not, I'm not as nutty as that, but <laughs> I... <laughs> I, I, I remember, uh, you know, I grew up playing tennis with John McEnroe. We grew up a couple of blocks away from each other in, in New York. And I remember watching him as a young professional 
Like, if he saw that I was talking to the guy next to me or something, if I wasn't concentrating fully on his match, he'd glare at me. Like, he knew I wasn't in it, <laughs> engaged fully. And he'd give me this withering look, and then I had to, like, snap back to his match. So I think early on I recognized what my own personal power was sitting in the stands. That's very funny. But seriously, your piece was really well done. Bird Lady, Clipper Clipper Daryl, uh, Gorilla Rilla. At first, like you said, I went into it going, okay, these are super fans. They miss the teams playing and being at the games. But then you see like how important this is to their identity. And, and I felt really sorry for them by the end of the piece. I know. I, you know, the, the two that I found most poignant, um, Bird Lady, this is a this is a, a woman who all she ever wanted to be from the time she was a little girl was a mom, you know, and she wasn't able to. So she feels like she is the mother bird, the mother hen of everybody in Falcon Stadium. And, the, and of course, people, they love seeing her, even opposing teams like super fans from the home teams, you know, and and Gorilla Rilla, uh, Mark Acasio is his name. This is a guy who grew up hard, you know. He grew up, his parents were both gone by the time he was a little boy. He never felt like he got to be a child. So the idea that he could dress up every Sunday, you know, in this in a gorilla costume and cheer his heart out for a team he loves, that allowed him to be the boy he never got to be. So, yes, these when you, when you understand how these people got to where they are every Sunday, yeah, it means something. Mary, I'm watching what's going on in the NFL right now. In the first two weeks in November, the league averaged 54 positive COVID tests among players and personnel. That's an increase from six positive tests per week throughout the month of September. What are we doing right now? I mean, the Ravens-Steelers game has been postponed three times. Again, yeah. I, I, I just – what I've said from the beginning in March, and this is a business show – it's all about the money, right? We're, we're trying to save businesses. We're trying to save revenues, college sports, pro sports. I get it. But if you remove the money from the equation, is it this ludicrous that we're playing sports during a pandemic? You know, I, the way this entire country is handling this pandemic is shameful. I mean, more to the point, I mean, we are just not, we are just not doing what other countries are are willing to do, and I'm I'm actually shocked that the NFL is still going on. And they've still got two more months to go, and this is the meat of the season. So, yeah, who's that guy a couple of days ago who had to become the quarterback? <laughs> yeah, for the Denver Broncos. Yeah, they hadn't thrown a ball. I don't think since like his second year in college. Or so. I mean, this is madness, and there's no bubble, and there's no. Uh, it, it seems like they're not taking all the precautions that the WNBA and the NBA were willing to take. Um, so this can't be a surprise to anybody. And and more than that, um, my daughter and son-in-law used to live in Columbus, Ohio, and my son-in-law is a huge football college football fan. And I'm so glad they're not there now because the outbreak in Columbus, Ohio, is one of the worst in the country. Because not because because people, it's not like the fans are allowed in the stadium, but they're all still gathering in bars and cheering and screaming at each other and sharing air and COVID with each other. And I'm just, again, I'm just so happy my kids don't live in Columbus anymore. I mean, this is, it's very scary. It's very frightening. Um, And it just doesn't seem like we're staying ahead of it at all. Um, I'm I'm very worried about it. But I just, on an 
and obviously TV is a big part of it. I mean, the money is coming from TV, right? The money right. is coming from all these people who want to get stuff on the air and, and their their TV rights and all of that. I get all of it. I understand the, the financial burden that is being put upon sports leagues to continue on, but it's not safe. You can't call it safe. And I have to tell you, also, I did, as I said, I called the French Open. I called it. I was with Dan Dix in the studio in Stanford, Connecticut, and the third member of our broadcasting team, John McEnroe, was in Malibu, California, <laughs> from his home. I, and there was no, they had, NBC had figured it out so well because they'd been doing it with hockey already. They already, they'd already figured out how to make it work and make it seamless. And after the first, and there's no like delay sometimes, there are no glitches. Nobody, you know, nobody dropped out. And after the first show, John McGinnis, our, our producer for, uh, for tennis at NBC, he said, all right. Yeah, that worked out well, guys. You know, thanks. And I and I said to him, "We're never going back to Paris again, are we?" I mean, tragically, it worked great. If you happen to love the city of Paris, there's no reason for us to go back there and and you know be on site. You know, it's so, to your point, it's so much more efficient to do it this other way. It's much more economical. The and over the months from the beginning of the pandemic to now. You know, you can watch any kind of a news show where there are people coming in from all over the country. It looks so much better and sounds so much better now than it did in the beginning, right? Right. Well, so, and, and I mean, what's gonna? Yeah. You look at the NBA. So they go inside the bubble in Orlando, and I used to work in the NBA. So I have friends. You know, no one sent their team broadcasters inside the bubble. Everyone called games. Remotely, the networks called games on site, but the teams themselves called games remotely. And, you know, if you start thinking about the access to the players and coaches, like, do they really want more people on the team playing the money they can save? And like you just said, it's been proven now that you can call a game remotely and and it looks and sounds okay. I wonder if that's going to be part of the new normal going forward is things are going to be called remotely a lot more. Uh, that would be my guess, honestly. And for instance, I was I was doing the world feed. I was calling tennis matches at the US Open for the world feed, so I was on site. And I so I guess I assumed that I would be able to go to the press conferences of the players, but I couldn't. Even though I was there, I would have to join like the big Zoom press mm-hmm. conference instead. You know what I mean? So my access was pretty good, but it wasn't good enough for me to actually talk to the players. So I wasn't getting, I had the advantage of being there physically and watching the U.S. Open. When I wasn't working, I was, you know, about 10 feet away from these guys. I, I had access to seats I never get when I'm working as far as But, yeah, I mean, how, I think it's going to be hard to justify going forward, even when the pandemic lifts. I just think so much has changed. And it's, the technology has gotten so good that it would be hard to justify schlepping a bunch of people, you know, a production team and broadcasters and all that. It would be hard to justify that now if you don't have to, right? So let me ask you something. And I think you are ultimately qualified to answer this question. You're someone who has done poignant pieces for real sports and also for NBC with the Olympics, those human interest stories. Can you tell the story in the same way remotely like you did with the superfan piece, or do you need to be in person with the subject? I, mean, I, 
I absolutely think it helps to be face-to-face with these subjects. I had done a, a real sports piece earlier in the summer and <laughs> um, about a guy who'd been uh, a speed skater who turned in, it finally made it, and it was in, it, after he, and he won silver in Sochi for speed skating. And then he became a baseball player. And after, you know, six years in the minors, he made it up to the major. It was a beautiful story. And I only interviewed three people. I interviewed, I interviewed him and his father and his brother. And I made two out of three of them cry. Like my, one of the producers on Real Sports said, how did you do that? <laughs> like, <"Really?" laughs> wow. I, mean, I, I guess it's a point of pride, but, but also I just, I, it's not, it's not the same. Obviously there's a membrane of doing things remotely. There's a membrane between you and your subject that didn't exist before, but that, that is where it really counts that you, that you gain trust. Um, to the, to the people you're, you're speaking to, to, you know, that you really invest um, in the story and avail yourself to these people. And it, it will not be the same, but that's why I'm, I'm going to have to get better at what I do. I, I want to be as good an interviewer now as, as I can possibly be, because I do feel like this is going to be how it goes from now on in large measure. Interesting. So you have worked for NBC for a long time when it comes to the Olympics and I'm looking at, you know, next year. So it's been postponed to July 23rd, 2021. It was supposed to take place this year. As you mentioned, you should have been in Tokyo this year, just on the surface, you look at this and go, okay, we're bringing athletes and fans and coaches from all over the world together to one spot. We talk about super spreader events isn't yeah. this like the Super Bowl of super spreader events if we do this without a vaccine? I, I, I yeah, of course it is. Um, of course it is. Um, and I got to tell you, NBC continues to sound optimistic about it being able to happen. But I, I quickly say that so much of the NBC team, production crew and announcers, they will still be in Stanford, Connecticut. Mm. And so... There was, I was to go to Tokyo this year because I do those kind of stories you speak of, you know, historical pieces and, you know, you know, uh, that kind of stuff, history pieces and, and like biographical stories. I did, in fact, I'd already shot three pieces for the Tokyo Games last year. Um, I, I took a deep dive into sumo wrestling, (laughs) um, uh, into, uh, I, I, you know, uh, I was there for the cherry blossom season. Uh, I learned all about samurai. Um, and those are the kind of pieces you've got. Obviously, you've got to be in that. Right. To tell a story like that. I was going to go to Tokyo. I was scheduled to go to Tokyo in 2020. I'm assuming I'm still scheduled to go in 2021, but it'll be a much smaller crew that, that heads over to Japan next summer if it, if it indeed happens. And again, the safety, here's the other question. And this is, this is really deals more with the morals and ethics of, of the vaccine. Like who gets it? Who gets it first? I mean, shouldn't it be the elderly and doctors and nurses? And I mean, can you really, can Olympic athletes really jump the line just because the Olympics is going on next year? (laughs) I think I'd have a hard time. I'd have a hard time. I'd much rather my 90-year-old mother and my soon-to-be 95-year-old father got the vaccine before 
any sprinter or any gymnast, in, you know? Well, and they're saying be- 90 to 95% success rate. Well, <laughs> do we really want to take a risk of who's in the 5 to 10%? I mean, I love how during this pandemic, we throw out all these numbers and we're so casual with like, you know, the five or the 10% that it doesn't work out for them or they're younger and they may not get it. So they can take a risk that other people can't. I have a daughter. I'm not willing to take that risk with her. No, no, of course not. Uh, I, I know. And, and what's interesting now are the lingering effects of having had COVID, you know, and how it affects the lungs and how people are still remarkably tired months after they're allegedly over it, you know? And um, I don't know. I, I, I share all of your concerns, all of them. Mm. Um, and, and frankly, on a, on a personal level, as I said, I have elderly parents. I've got a 10-month-old granddaughter. And the idea that I would have to quarantine, you know, two weeks there, two weeks back, you know, uh, just to make myself safe that I, that I can't infect them or, or vice versa, that that's a, that's a hard, these are, you know what I've got, Ryan, I've, in the year 2020, I have, I haven't had COVID, I've been tested a lot, but I absolutely have decision fatigue, mm. if that's a term. <laughs> like, you try to decide, what, all right, what should I do? What's safe? Do I really need to go get more milk today? Can I stay out, you know? God, everyone's down, like, I live in Naples, Florida, people here, so many people here aren't wearing masks, they're at the beach, they act like, you know, if they can't see it, it's not there. So, yeah, I have decision fatigue. Well, you might have a big one coming up with the Olympics. You know, if they gave yeah. you the choice of you can do your job remotely or you can actually go to Tokyo, that would be a big decision. I'll tell you, as I said, I was in the Stanford studios um, for the French Open. That place is and normally the NBC, that building uh, where you know where all the sports come out of. It's usually, it's, I think, it usually has about eight hundred people in it on any given day. There are maybe a couple of dozen of us there hmm. for the fortnight. I mean, maybe. And there are arrows up and down the hallways. You can only take this hallway to go one way and this one to go the other way. There were temperature checks, obviously, every day. Um, it's, I, I felt very, very safe. Um, and I, I like that feeling, you know, I'm, I'm 63 years old myself. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm becoming more and more, uh, susceptible to anything, you know? So yeah, I, um, yeah, as I, as I said, there, there are going to be hard decisions to make really hard decisions. Well, I, I, in fact, I was supposed to cover the U S open tennis for tennis channel from a studio in LA, but I hadn't seen my parents since February. They still live in New York. So I took another job with another network just so that I could be in New York for a couple of weeks and see my mom for her 90th birthday. Wow. And those are the kind of decisions I never had to make before. And now I make them, I feel like I make them every day. Yeah. No, that's very, very interesting. And, and I also think, you know, I've been saying this on this show a lot too. After 9-11, there was a new normal, right? We we go to the airport differently. There's different security protocols. After this, there's going to be a new normal. It's not going to go back to the way that it was. And I think we're seeing some of the preludes, temperature testing and, and things like that, that will be part of the new normal. Yeah, absolutely. And then what do you do with all these stadia that hold 90,000 people? I mean, is that ever going to happen again? Are we ever going to want to fill our stadiums the way, the way they're designed to take on people now? You know? 
Yeah. And 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 if that's the case, do you going forward will sports leagues want much more intimate arenas so that the sound, the acoustics are better, the sound is better, the atmosphere is better. I, there's a lot that we still don't know, isn't it? Yeah, there is a lot. And and if I were if I were uh, you know, Steve Ballmer or someone like that building a new stadium for the Los Angeles Clippers, I would certainly look at a more intimate facility than right. one that holds 25,000 people. Yeah, that's right. But then you don't have the gate that you that you that you want like some it depends on and again I, and it's hard to know if it it's hard to know how much covid affected like did the, did fans did the ratings go down for sports this year because everything was bunched together in the fall or because the fans didn't care about sports anymore. It seemed like a, a lesson, you know, will the gate, even if the gates, even if the doors fly open because, because they've found a vaccine, are people, does people really want to bunch up together like that the way they have in the past? I don't know. I'm not too big on crowds anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't, I, you're right. Everything that this is, I got to tell you, just walking around with masks, that normalized for me very quickly. And I, you know, you used to see people wearing masks in airports sometimes, especially if you were traveling through Asia and it looked weird. And now it looks, I get upset if I see someone who doesn't have one on. No, I totally agree. I'll never get on an airplane again without a mask. Right, right, exactly. So, and, and, you know, I went for a walk with my daughter in the country the other day and everyone had a mask on and, you know, you're out in the fresh air. People still were wearing their masks and it's really not that hard. I, I, you know, I try not to get too political on this show, but some things, like you said at the beginning of the interview, look at how other countries have handled this and where they are. And then look at how we've handled this and where we are. It tells a pretty clear story. A damning story. I, I'm waiting to see whether the Australian Open tennis, the first major of the tennis calendar happens in January in Melbourne, Australia, and they are speaking of either delaying it or not holding it, even though the city of Melbourne has not had a COVID outbreak in over a month. Think about that. Hmm. They still and, and what they're saying is you can't travel with the same kind of entourage. You have to be in a bubble. You can only go directly from the courts to two different hotels that they've allocated as player hotels. You have to quarantine before and after, like everything. And and they don't want fans from anywhere outside of the state of Victoria. And Australia has done a hell of a job. I mean, New Zealand has done a hell of a job. We, we're losing tens of thousands of people every day in this country. So yeah. again, shame on us. It's shame on us. And so, politicizing masses is absolutely insane. I would agree. Um, so let me ask you this as someone who's covered tennis forever at the beginning of this, you know, we kind of talked on this show about here are some sports that are pretty well positioned to at least play because of the social distancing. I think golf is one and we've seen that. I think tennis is a sport that, you know, because of the proximity of the competitors, it's not a contact sport. It's positioned well to actually execute the matches what should the future of tennis look like? Because I think they're in a unique position to be able to maybe win some fans and get some eyeballs that they may not have had a year ago. The, the tennis is absolutely one of the safest sports you can play. There's no contact. And most of the time, one player is about 80 feet away from the other. Um, 
The problem is that the tennis calendar bounces all over the globe from week to week. Mm. So for tennis to move forward, it's going to have to regionalize. There's going to be, like for, for instance, in Australia, there's usually before the Australian Open, there's a tournament in Brisbane, there's a tournament in Perth, there's a tournament in Adelaide, and then, you know, uh, the summer Australian Open tennis goes for two weeks. That, that is how tennis will have to move going forward. Like all those tournaments, all those great tennis cities are going to collapse into Melbourne if they're able to pull off the Australian Open. Everything will happen there. And so players will stay in Australia for about six weeks every year. And then if, and then North America, normally there's a tournament out in Indian Wells, California, then it bounces to Miami, then it heads over to the clay courts of Europe and they stay there for a while. Then it, that has to stop. You, you're going to have to, if, if North America wants tennis, they're going to have to regionalize. They're going to have to keep tournaments together. You know, Europe, they're going to have to go from, you know, maybe you can go from Spain to France safely or Germany. There's tournaments there, but every, you, you just can't keep bouncing from country to country anymore. That's the biggest problem I see in my own sport is that, you know, it's you go from country to country, time zone to time. That has never really been that big an issue. And now it's a huge issue, a huge issue. Do you think the men's tour, the ATP, and the women's tour, the WTA, will ever finally come together? So if you are going to regionalize, everyone can be under kind of one umbrella? That is the dream. <laughs> I'm only laughing because in the in the early months of the pandemic, it was there's like a real buzz about that happening. You know? Right. The ATP men's tour, the WTA women's tour, they were finally going to sit down at a big table and smoke cigars and drink, you know, scotch and figure it all out. <laughs> Nothing like that has happened. And, and frankly, a, a big problem is that the men, for years, they've had their own sponsors, their own TV packages, their own. And there's still plenty of men in the locker room who don't want the women to, in, in their words, piggyback off of them, whatever. Um, so there are all kinds of reasons why I'm guessing it won't happen anytime soon, or at least it won't happen fairly, you know, and honestly, Brian, if you think about it, uh, for tennis tournaments to succeed, if you really want a profit margin in, in this sport, there's only, I'm, I'm guessing maybe there's 12 tournaments that have, you know, are going to have a successful profit margin every year, the four majors. And Indian Wells is at uh, Miami, you know, Cincinnati in this country. And then over on the other side, Madrid's a big tournament, you know. But there aren't that many. Most most tournaments are a lot smaller. They depend on the gate. Uh, they depend on TV, TV packages, streaming rights, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, again, it, it's a tricky thing. There are a lot of tennis tournaments, tennis direct tournament directors who are truly hurting and wondering if they're even going to be able to keep their tournaments going mm -hmm. forward. Just a couple more minutes, uh, a few more questions. Are there any stories sure. or events that you haven't covered that you want to cover? You're so versatile. You, you've done so many things in your career, your Hall of Fame career, but is there anything out there that you look at and go, you know, I really want to cover that? You know, it's so yes, of course. There's, uh, I mean, I'm it. I I see stories all the all the time that really engage me, and it's so funny. I don't know if you watched the Queen's Gambit. Oh my gosh, I loved it, loved it. So did I. So did I. And and clearly, I wasn't alone because I guess chessboard sales have gone through the roof. There, but anyway, I pitched that story to Real Sports, 
whether you think chess is a sport or a game, the idea that women are considered less than men in the game of chess, I found fascinating, and I wanted to do a deep dive into that. So I pitched the story to Real Sports. Somebody else had already pitched the chess. I think it was one of the associate producers. Like, I'm, there are great, great ideas out there, terrific stories. And, and uh, oh, I mean, it never ends. You know, you can pick up, if I'm sitting in a doctor's office and I, uh, I don't normally read Field and Stream, but there's something in there and I start going crazy. I want to leave the office and go try to pitch myself. <laughs> um, that happens all the time, all the time. And, and I mean, as obviously in my world, uh, it becomes it becomes very personal. I was so proud of Naomi Osaka, you know, the, the U.S. Open champion this year. Um, this is a kid who said months ago at the start of the pandemic, she's Asian and black. And she became very woke in this time. And this is somebody who wrote months ago she, on Twitter. She wrote, I'm done being shot. Hmm. She walked out. I, I tried to get her before the U.S. Open last year, and we couldn't figure out the right time. We wanted more access than Naomi was willing to give us. And it, it, it's a pity because the kid won the tournament again for the second time. She won the Open wearing a mask uh, as she walked on and off the court of victims of police violence. And after the first one, you know, we didn't know that she was going to do that. And she was asked after the first one, are you going to have, you know, are you going to keep this up? And she said, I have seven masks and I want to use them all. It takes seven wins to win the title. And sure enough, she did that. Hmm. Um, I love stories like that. I, 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 and in my own sport, I know there are a bunch of stories I would love to tell. I'd love to tell. You know what? It's funny. At the end of last year's, we have a year in review show coming up on Real Sports. It'll air in December. And at the end of last year, you know, we all get together, all the, all the correspondents, it's a roundtable discussion. And Brian Gumbel asked all of us, who's the one person you would like to interview? And everyone had great, I mean, everyone had their ideas. And, their, and when he got to me, I said, Serena and Venus's mom. <laughs> Interesting. Said, and, the, and the reason is because she's very quiet, very private. Um, and she has been through a hell of a lot. And she doesn't talk about it. I would love to listen to that woman, who I think is very thoughtful. And and I would love, that's a story I would love to do sometime in the future. But frankly, Oprah's going to get it before me. You know? <laughs> hey, don't sell yourself short. Come on. I'm telling you, Brian, if Orestine Williams ever does open up about, I mean, she had, one of her daughters was murdered in Compton. She's been through divorce. She's been through uh, all kinds of stuff with her kids. Uh, if she finally does it, you know, I, I got the feeling a lot of people will understand that that's a story worth telling. And I'll and whoever gets that story, if it happens, I'll I'll sit down and watch and be happy to hear it. Well, I hope you get it. I would love to get. It. <laughs> I think I think I'm way down the potential list, but I think there are important stories to to hear. I I, I like I like getting inside the ribs of people, you know. And I love the athletic part. I want to. I want to. I want to understand how it works, why it beats the way it does. You know. Yeah, we're That's the same in that way. I, I've done this show for 17 years, and I'm just curious about people. I'm fascinated by people yeah. and their story, and you know, hopefully, asking the questions that they haven't been asked before, and and kind of getting inside their minds. And I think everyone has an interesting story to tell. So I never get bored of this job because there's a different story to tell every week. You know that's. 
I've been asked, uh, you know, over the years, I used to, especially in the beginning, when I was first starting out, people said, God, why don't you just like talking to dumb jocks? Like, why don't you do hard news? Why don't you get on a news magazine? I, and I, I think athletes are remarkable people, remarkable people. I mean, that they could dedicate themselves, declare themselves at such a young age and be that committed and have dreams that big. And I, I mean, sometimes there are athletes who are just, Sorry, why am I? This this guy is a tennis ball with feet. Why am I listening to this guy? But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you you come to understand how somebody how where their dream started and what they had to go through to get there and the resilience of their hearts. I mean, I I listen to that kind of stuff all day long. No, I I totally agree. So here's the last question. I've been doing a lot of zooms lately with journalism classes. And I look at what's going on in journalism right now where, you know, lots of people, lots of really good qualified people are losing their jobs. And it's hard for me to not be honest with the the journalism students. I, I tell them, look, this is a great path for you, the storytelling, you know, the skills you want to build. But this is an industry that's declining right now. Jobs are, are being eliminated. If, if you're speaking to journalism students, or we have a lot of journalism students who listen to this show, what's your advice? Who someone You've been in this industry a long time, but it's changing. It's changing like crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough one, and, and what has complicated things for people who want to be professional storytellers is social media. A lot, a lot of athletes don't need us anymore or don't think they do. You know, they, they bypass us and go and tell their story on Players' Tribune, you know. Cynthia Cooper, by the way, did one the other day that knocked me down because I'd interviewed her for Real Sports many years ago. God, she told her story better than anybody else could have told it, and you heard her voice when she told it. Mm. So I think one of, one, of the, one of the problems, and it'll only get tougher, is that, that you know, so much of social media, and if you do want to write, and if, you know, they'll say, you know, 800 words or less, you know, and it's got to be a big headline, and it's got to be. So I think it's important for journalists to understand the current environment and what it is people are looking for. And the hope, I mean, I, the hope is that the kids you're speaking to, the, the, the young men and women who want to be journalists are willing to go deeper than that to find a place and find space where they can tell a story better. It's one of the, it's one of the biggest reasons I love being on real sports. You know, our stories can go, there's no commercials. Um, so you can tell a 15 minute story and it could be patient and it could be, you know, and it could be layered and textured and we're not allowed to use music on our show. So you can't manipulate the moment <laughs> or the viewers by using, you know, cheesy, corny music or dramatic music. It's got to be there. You have to get it from that person you're talking to. Um, and that is, so, and, and frankly, there's a lot of content, a lot of, a lot of outlets now need a lot of content. The documentaries, which, and I've done about eight or nine of them over the years, and I love doing them. I've written a couple of them. I've, I've been a part of a bunch of them. I love long-form storytelling, and I would suggest that that you know your your the, your young journalists 
you know, think in those ways as well. What can I, what, how do I go deep? Because there's, there's room for that too. All these people, Netflix, who they all need content. And, you know, so that's available to them as well. But it's hard. And I, I think the most important thing is to keep your voice, you know, to know your voice and to keep it and make it singular, you know, and, and truthful. And, and if you can use your own authentic voice to tell a story, nobody can do it that way except you. No, that's, that's really, what I'd tell That's really good advice. Has anyone ever come to you or your buddy John McEnroe and said, hey, we really want you to get on social media? <laughs> yes, I've been asked by just about everyone I've ever worked for. <laughs> <laughs> so why yeah, not? Um, I just, I have avoided, I'm not on any social media. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on, I'm not on anything. I, 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 it, to me, it looks like a, a, a toxic time suck. Uh, I, and I, so I, I read a lot off of Twitter. Obviously I read a lot of, a lot of stories, newspapers, I follow magazines and, and I, I, I'm very grateful for Twitter in those ways. I just don't want to jump in there. I, I just, I, I just have a feeling I'd never get out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and McEnroe on there, can you imagine McEnroe and Barkley? If I could pick two people today to put on social media that aren't on there right now, it would be John McEnroe and Charles Barkley. I, <laughs> that is a good call. But I think we both know exactly what they've been saying anyway. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think I can hear their tweets from, from here. Yeah. That's very funny. <laughs> Mary Carrillo, member of the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame, terrific correspondent for HBO Real Sports. You see her on NBC with the Olympics, the National Dog Show, longtime tennis commentator. You know, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. So when uh, HBO Real Sports called and said you were available, I was thrilled. So I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I'm so glad you did as well. I really enjoyed speaking to you. And keep up the great work and uh, be safe and happy holidays. You too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. 
That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our team at Sports Business Radio, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and our friends at CG Sports who power Sports Business Radio, CG Young, Matt Amerlin, Nicole Wardle, and Calvin Wirtz. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.